0: Welcome to episode 79 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the program, we have Richard Curtin and Elizabeth Nauru-Pekan. Richard is a research fellow with the Development Policy Centre, with a focus on Pacific labour mobility. Liz is the founder and co-owner of the multi-award winning resort, The Havana, in Vanuatu, Within four days of Australia closing its borders to international travel, Liz's resort had zero income. Over the last two months, she's been contributing to Vanuatu's response to both COVID-19 and Cyclone Harold by devising a tourism sector recovery plan. We've included a link to it in the show notes, as well as a link to an article Liz wrote for the Dev Policy blog on the tourism sector in Vanuatu. We've also included links to recent analysis by Richard. In this episode, Richard and I discuss the trans-Pacific travel bubble, including whether the benefits outweigh the risks for Pacific Island countries. We discuss whether the Pacific is too dependent on tourism, along with how best to approach labour migration during the COVID-19 recovery period. Liz and I discuss what the reality has been for tourism sector workers in Vanuatu and whether any support is being provided to workers who have had their contracts terminated. This episode analyzes the road ahead for tourism and labour mobility in the Pacific and whether a travel bubble is the best way forward. Enjoy the episode. First up, Richard Curtin. Richard, thanks for speaking with me. In recent weeks, the Australian and New Zealand governments have been considering a trans-Tasman COVID-safe travel zone in order to assist in the economic recovery of the two countries. Both Australia and New Zealand have also said that they're open to Pacific participation, but at a later stage. You obviously support the idea. Why do you think the travel bubble should be expanded to include the Pacific?
1: My main reason is the fact that... um the economies of Fiji, Samoa and Vanuatu are heavily dependent on tourism. Uh, Looking at recent figures for 2018, over half of Fiji's total export revenue comes from tourism. Vanuatu is even more dependent on tourism at 70% of its export revenues for the same year. And Samoa's revenue is 58% from tourism for export revenue in 2018. So, Taking that away from those countries leaves a huge gap in their economy.
0: Is it not too early to be thinking about opening our borders to other countries, let alone to Pacific Island countries, when we're barely opening our states to one another in Australia?
1: No, it isn't because a lot of planning is going to have to go into managing how the cross-international border travel will work. And that preparation for that needs to start now. My interest in the issue stems from the work I've done on the managed migration pathway involving seasonal workers coming into Australia and New Zealand. And I know that it requires some considerable effort to make sure that both the sending and receiving countries have systems in place that can ensure that workers are properly looked after. So the same focus on detail about suitable systems in place is needed for a tourist pathway to work.
0: Isn't the situation we're dealing with right now quite different to labour migration pathways in that it's not just about those pathways, but it's about ensuring that a deadly virus doesn't spread throughout the region.
1: It is different, and that's why extra planning is needed. In particular, uh, a lot of testing and tracing will be needed at both ends of the pathway. And I think uh, there are real signs that countries in the Pacific, particularly Fiji, are not only keen for the pathway, but they've also put in place a tracing app, which I noticed on AM this morning was uh, a lead story. Beginnings of what's needed are already happening. It's just that there are a number of other things that have to follow through, such as systems that can trace people once that information about people who identified through the app as having uh, been positive a follow-up uh, contact system is needed to ensure that uh, those people can be, uh, other, as people have come into contact with them, can be tracked down.
0: It was revealed yesterday that our tracing app in Australia isn't working as planned because the data can't be accessed in the way that it needs to be. If even we can't make an app to trace COVID-19, how could we expect Fiji or another Pacific Island country?
1: Yeah, look, all, all these... Uh teething problems, and there's plenty of time to sort them out. We're talking about uh, not doing anything about a Pacific tourism pathway until there is a pathway between Australia and New Zealand. And of course, for that to be set up, both uh, tracing apps will have to be working well. Yeah, look, as we all know with software, there are always updates to refine them.
0: Okay, Pacific Island countries were very quick to close their borders in response to COVID-19 and have taken a health-first approach. What makes you think that Pacific Island countries want to participate in the travel bubble?
1: Well, apart from Fiji, who announced uh, in the media on the 5th of May that they were interested as soon as there was talk of a a trans-Tasman bubble, but Vanuatu's uh, finance minister Uh, in early May also came out and said uh, Vanuatu wanted to be part of the system. Countries like Samoa and Tonga are much more reluctant because Samoa had a very bad experience with their measles outbreak. Uh, Their vaccination levels had dropped for measles and uh, some over 50 people, particularly children, died. So their health system wasn't coping very well and I think probably Tonga would be picking up on what happened to uh, Samoa and they'd be reluctant. So it requires investment in the health systems of the receiving countries and I think that that's an important uh, wake-up call for Australia to, to direct aid to ensure that the receiving countries' health systems are able to deal with any uh, possible outbreaks that might occur.
0: I mean, a reasonable amount of aid investment has already gone into health systems in the Pacific over recent decades, and yet the health systems in the Pacific remain very poor across the board. I think it's quite worrying that uh, Australian and New Zealand tourists could risk bringing COVID-19 to Pacific Island countries that don't have it now. How do you effectively manage those health risks?
1: Well, basically, it wouldn't be an open-ended influx. Uh, it, people coming as tourists would continue to operate or continue to live within a bubble. They would Their bubbles would be... Uh, hotel resorts in Denaru or in outlying uh, resorts away from uh, large populations. It had all continued to be uh, strongly managed in where people were going for their uh, tourist destination.
0: So does that mean the design of the bubble is contingent on tourists not having face-to-face engagement with local communities?
1: No, I I don't think that is necessary at all staff would of course have to be a part of a an arrangement where they had a tracking uh, app or if they didn't they were providing information about where they were connecting to but i think more generally when people are traveling. The communities they go into are largely taken for granted or they're seen as largely passive. But I think um, tourists operating a pathway along a pathway that we're talking about would have to engage or commit to a range of safety uh, checks, health, health safety checks, but also to work out ways they could engage with those local communities in in productive, active ways.
0: And if tourists could engage with local communities safely, are you of the view that the benefits would outweigh the risks?
1: Certainly. I, I think we've got to operate in a world where any, any particular uh, positive cases are properly managed and it, it's a matter of uh, continuing to put in place those systems rather than saying we've got to avoid any interaction because of the risk.
0: Just stepping back from the bubble and looking at what's behind it, namely tourism and migrant work, these are sources of income and foreign exchange that have become increasingly important for the Pacific. But do you think they have a future? Like if we take tourism first, how likely are people to hop on a plane, let alone a cruise ship, for their next holiday?
1: An important part of the future of the Pacific is opening up to the world around them and that's become more evident with opportunities for temporary labour migration into Australia and New Zealand. Vanuatu in particular is the lead country doing that for both Australia and New Zealand. And it's it's generate massive amounts of revenue, revenue that goes directly to households rather than being mediated through uh, aid programs. I think uh, the recent, fairly recent opening up of um, Pacific economies through migration, it's been longer in the case of Samoa and Tonga because of the links to New Zealand, but the opening up of of Vanuatu and of course uh, Fiji over a longer period of time has all contributed significant benefits that can't be produced any other way. Look, I I think that it will depend on a particular demographic and attitude of those that want to do it. It it won't be just a matter of hopping on a plane thinking, uh, I might as well go to Fiji uh, for the next seven days rather than uh, a, a domestic location. It'll require much more planning and careful thought through as to what's involved in doing that. But I noticed that um, a survey that was mentioned on uh, AM, ABC AM this morning, that the tourism uh, and transport forum came out, results saying that uh, nearly half of people from New South Wales want to travel to somewhere warmer during the winter. And I think it was uh, 46% for Victorians. so basically, That's focused on domestic destinations of obviously Queensland. But I think uh, some proportion of those, given the right uh, framework, would uh, be happy to travel to a place like Fiji or Vanuatu because they're they're known destinations. And if they're reassured that arrangements are in place to accept them, then I think uh, they will be happy to do it.
0: You said there that it's a particular demographic that this would appeal to. Who is that demographic?
1: Well, I I think it's those people who feel least threatened by the virus. And uh, in particular, I think it's uh, young people, young families. Uh, I would think that people who are over the age of 70 would be uh, more reluctant. And, And in fact, I'm going to suggest in a blog that I'm producing that people in that age group uh, be actually disqualified from being eligible to travel on the pathway, not only for their own safety, but also for the point of view of those communities that are accepting them. People have to, who are receiving them have to feel that uh, care has been taken in sending the right messages to people who are doing the travelling that they are low risk.
0: If you had to put a timeline in place, how long will it take for the Pacific travel bubble to be functional and how long will it take for tourism to the Pacific to recover?
1: Look, I'm not too sure what the time period would be, but I certainly think it requires a process of experimentation. It has to be built up from the bottom up. We should do it on a small scale, learn from what has gone well and what hasn't gone well, and then lift it to an, another scale after that and then learn the lessons. If we have learned anything from uh, the debates in development about doing development differently, it's the importance to start with local commitment to making change and doing it from the bottom up with on a trial and error basis work out what is going to work and and learn from what hasn't worked.
0: When we say we're going to go from the bottom up, though, in Pacific Island communities, m- my concern is that the tourism sector is occupied by people who often have very precarious livelihoods and, and may not be aware of the full ramifications of what they're agreeing to. Is there a risk that governments in the Pacific will say yes to this for economic reasons, but the real people that experience the the brunt of the risk are locals who, who haven't participated in the decision-making?
1: No, I, I think that, that that is the the real challenge. If you're going to introduce a managed pathway, all those involved have to be aware of uh, what uh, they're committing to and what their obligations, what their responsibilities are. So it, it's the same with any major intervention. If it's going to work people have to be consulted about it and have to understand uh, what their part in it has to be for it to work.
0: I think that raises all the same concerns about free prior and informed consent that we see across the entire development sector.
1: It is, but and that's why it takes longer. Uh, you can't just do this as a quick and easy uh, intervention. It, it's a case of requiring a lot of groundwork for it to work and th- but that's not a bad thing.
0: Pacific economies are also heavily dependent on seasonal work to Australia. How have travel restrictions affected Pacific seasonal workers and how have they affected Australia's farmers?
1: Yeah, a, a, a good question. I've just finished a quick so- uh, uh, rounding up uh, asking uh, approved employers for feedback on how their workers are going. Basically, there are two groups, seasonal workers that are continuing with the same employers because they're earning good money, uh, happy, and they're in a stable situation. But there's another group of workers, those who've had to move often interstate to be able to uh, take up other work, and there have been a number of difficulties involved there, partly to do with um, the enforced two-week isolation required when crossing state boundaries, but also lots of difficulties with uh, the way the seasonal worker program operating out of uh, Department of Employment in Canberra has been uh, very inflexible in the way that uh, they've delayed all sorts of approvals needed for the workers to take up uh, that work. And so weeks have gone by when workers uh, who could have been working haven't been, and that's created uh, a number of frustrations and 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 problems.
0: So the Department of Employment, who you're talking about, are responsible for running the seasonal worker program. Are you saying that the response from them has been lacking?
1: Yes, definitely. Very strong feedback from many approved employers who responded to me said the department uh, had not shown any consideration to the situation they were in.
0: To close then, speaking generally, Australia is a country of migrants. But do you think the era of migration is over? Do you think a strategy of reliance on remittances still makes sense for Pacific Island countries?
1: No, I definitely don't think the era of migration is over. Uh, Migration for work has been at the core of the expansion of Australia's and New Zealand's economy and society for a long time. It's It's built into our DNA, I think you could say, for the Pacific, uh, temporary and long term migration for work has become a key source of income for the economies of most Pacific countries, except for Papua New Guinea and, and Solomon Islands. So I think uh, there'll be, as we're seeing, strong uh, pressures from both sides to set up arrangements that'll enable the work to recommence. For example, the issue of uh, our food supply when winter harvest uh, comes in, the pressure of winter harvest comes into effect in July, will create a problem of where workers are going to come from. They're not going to come from backpackers from overseas because that's too unmanaged. But one clear managed pathway is uh, to call on seasonal workers from the Pacific and Timor-Leste. And I think that that call will increase when when. People become aware that uh, their basically their food, their supply of food and um, and fruit will be uh, affected if the workers aren't available to uh, carry out the harvest.
0: Okay, what should we watch out for in the next few months as the Trans-Pacific travel bubble evolves?
1: Well, I, I think there'll be a, a need for um, a seasonal workforce to come in uh, for the harvest. On the issue of the tourism pathway i think the first step will be uh the australia new zealand trans tasman pathway and once basic issues are ironed out through that there'll be a need to work out what specific issues will have to be addressed but as i said the planning should be started now to do that and i'll be writing a blog suggesting what issues need to be addressed to do that here and now
0: that was Richard Curtin. Next, I speak to Liz Pekan from the Havana Resort in Vanuatu. Liz, thanks for speaking with me. We understand that within four days of Australia closing its borders, your resort, the Havana, had zero income. Were you prepared for the economic impact of COVID-19?
2: No amount of foresight allowed us to factor in the impacts of the global pandemic. I mean, in hindsight, you know, I wasn't expecting the decimation to our industry. So in the first few days, it, that was in March, um, you know, some of the feelings that I, I had to deal with were, you know, I was just completely stunned. It took me a bit of time to to deal with what was really going on in the entire world, particularly with aviation. Spending a few days sort of stunned by that, I, I then, you know, I had to snap out of it. I had to jolt out of that sort of state and realise, well, look, you know, we've got staff. they're they're sort of, you know, they're our Havana family and they've got livelihoods. I've got to, you know, jump into action because they're looking at me as to what we're going to do going going forward down this track. So right away, dropped into some uh, different scenarios and plans, mainly based around financial capability at that exact point in time. First on the list for me was, you know, my staff. And I initially was thinking that um, this pandemic would maybe be around for like a three months time frame. So a lot of my scenario planning was based around three months. But then back in March, things were changing so rapidly, almost daily, in country and globally, that I had to continually readjust um, our scenarios. And I've had to adjust them many times. And, and here, here we are in May talking about a possible return to tourism in 2021, when I initially thought it was three months. And thinking of of like um, how my income will return as it was pre-COVID, that's possibly five years away. So a a lot of feelings that I've had to deal with, in particular March and April, my feelings have changed a bit more since then, from being absolutely stunned to going into general survival mode, which I still am in, and I've had to be pragmatic under the state of emergency conditions that we are in right at this very minute.
0: You have said there that you don't expect tourism to recover until 2021, but of course if Vanuatu was included in a trans-Pacific travel bubble, then tourism could recover sooner. What is the position of the Vanuatu government on the travel bubble?
2: So I can't speak on behalf of the of the government, um, but what I can say is that we, um, in my industry and personally, we're doing. I'm doing everything, and we're doing everything in to collaborate with our government and also our local, national, and regional tourism actors to pre-position the sector as Oceana emerges from COVID nineteen impacts. But it's not it's not just a tourism travel bubble. It's it's about economic resilience. So there is talk about. Baby steps leading up to, I guess, the travel bubble, and um, and, and about corridors around uh, humanitarian, you know, repatriation, um, labour mobility corridors, which are really important um, between governments. And some talk, some talk about the labour mobility corridor, other corridors that are required, such as agricultural and maritime trade value chains. So. The core of all of this around the travel bubble or or corridors is is all to do with sustainable livelihoods. If people have income and they have well-being and understanding, then we have greater opportunity for our economic recovery through the travel bubble, through these corridors. And the sequence in which they come is what's going to be guided by our governments. What is the Vanuatu government doing about it? We've got a fairly new government that has come uh, um, on board And so uh, I think it's taking some time for our new government to uh, position and adjust themselves to these crises that are going on, particularly in Vanuatu. I mean, we've had more than just the COVID crisis.
0: You did say there that opening humanitarian corridors may be a priority before tourism. And of course, Vanuatu has been hit by Cyclone Harold as well in the last few months. How has Cyclone Harold affected tourism in Vanuatu and compounded with COVID-19?
2: Firstly, I'd like to share my condolence to my fellow Pacific Islanders that have been impacted by Cyclone Harold because I do know what they're going through. And as we navigate the impacts of COVID, um, knowledge sharing and common challenges and understanding are integral to getting through this crisis. Vanuatu, we've had TC Harold, but at the same time, we've also had a volcanic ash fall in one of our southern islands, as well as COVID. We've had these three things hit us, and what resources we have in country have been distributed to cyclone-affected areas and to the ash fall. So this is testing our economic resilience and it's stretching our cultural cohesion. It's, it's testing and stretching our economic and social relationships, even on personal levels. So connectivity with my staff, with my community, it's been integral. And this is a very sort of Pacific thing, I guess, um, being in humid Pacific countries. I, I see COVID as being like a boil. It's drawn that core malaise to the surface and it's confronted us with shortcomings and basic investments for a safe and prosperous nation.
0: When we think about some of those underlying problems that have been brought to the surface, one that's being discussed is whether Vanuatu and other Pacific Island countries are too dependent on tourism. When we consider that 70% of tourism jobs in Vanuatu have been lost in the last six weeks, where do you stand on that question?
2: Just to give a bit of history to lay the foundation for our country's journey. So Um, 1980 we were independent and Vanuatu um, had to develop its economic options for the country. Um, Its focus was back then in the 80s was on the productive sector and Vanuatu's government back then made a a choice to have the productive sector and also um, a tax haven status for Vanuatu. So Vanuatu has made choices that has worked for its people. The productive sector has always been there and it will always be there. But Vanuatu made a decision, I think around um, early 80s, mid-80s, to go into tourism. And what tourism has done is it's created jobs and those jobs provide livelihood. And that also feeds back into the productive sector. You know, people can buy boats to go fishing. They can buy yam spades to work in the the land. But there are some um, success stories with tourism. Um, But the tourism sector does contribute greatly to the GDP. And when you look at the number of, like in in employment terms, it employs a lot of people. And there is a domino effect in the number of people that it employs because it's not just the formal tourism sector. The informal sector is enormous and that accounts for so many jobs. So tourism is integral. Yes, currently we are, um, as a country, dependent on tourism heavily. We do need to recover tourism to be able to then use it as a springboard to diversify further. And people do need money to be able, you know, for their livelihoods. People do need money here in Vanuatu. That's my my feeling. You know, people need a taxi boat to get back to their island. They need money for education. They need money for medicine. We look at the productive sector and we look at tourism. At the moment, we've got this massive pool of skilled people in hospitality, tourism, and aviation. We can't just say to somebody on a front desk, "All right, you've got to go back into the productive sector." We, you know, right at this very minute, um, they might not have land to return to to cultivate that. And so, yes, we are reliant on tourism right now, and we do need to diversify. But we need to kickstart tourism first with the skilled people that we have because they are not you know they might not be have the skills to diversify straight away and so once we kick start tourism maybe then only after we've started can we talk about diversifying
0: right but of the 70 percent of tourism jobs that have been lost in the last six weeks what has happened to those people since their employment was terminated were they able to return to the productive sector or are they effectively unemployed now
2: So fifty percent of my staff, I had to be fairly selective with the staff that I laid off, and because um, the position of where my um, business is, it's sort of I've got four villages that surround the 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 resort. So the main um, my main employment comes from these surrounding four villages. A lot of them are family, so I've tried to keep maybe a mother and then lay off the son, and with with Melanesian culture. It's very much about community, extended families. It's not just based on immediate families. So I think people pull together, even with resources, whether it's finances um, as well. So that if there is one working person in a household, they're contributing financially. So that's, I mean, some these decisions were really hard to make, Rachel. And as a as a person on the ground, looking people in the eyes, it, it's I can tell you, it's really tough. And it's not, you know, I may be having to make these decisions going forward in the future. And um, they're really hard ones to make, knowing that everybody is hurting. Um, but coming back to your question of, um, you know, borders closing, uh, the lockdown of um, the state of emergency, how that affected us straight away. Basically, within the very first few days of that um, borders closing, with all the scenarios that I started putting out there, I, I, I made that decision to lay off 50% of our staff. But it's all—it's also important to note that the tourism sector, it engages a lot of informal livelihoods in terms of the organic produce, the cultural artisans, and the mm-hmm. Indigenous village eco tours. So my community suppliers were immediately and adversely affected as well. And because they they all live sort of um, around the area, it's been critical to keep the conversation there for understanding. And I have to say that through excellent, clear, good communication, the understanding of this situation is mutual. There hasn't been any sort of lashback, And that's been key to, especially for me, because, um, you know, the emotions that I go through for doing this They're not not made because I want to have made them. They're out of my control and it's important that my remaining staff and the staff that I've had to let go, you know, I've dealt with them and communicated with with them really carefully and and in detail and sometimes almost personally one-on-one because I'm explaining to them that I'm in survival mode to keep the business alive so that I can offer them reemployment in the future. The Vanuatu people, Vanuatu is very much about its people and, and yes, we are a resilient people, but they're really, you know, this is really testing us. Um, It's testing our cultural cohesion and it is really hard and I do hope that, you know, borders can open and that we can do this safely. Our, Our whole country wants to protect us first and foremost from COVID And it will be interesting um, to see what our government do around the criteria and protocols that will go in place to continue, um, you know, the excellent work that they've done in making sure that it hasn't reached our shores.
0: Now in terms of recovery, is the stimulus package announced by the Vanuatu government providing any support to tourism workers whose contracts had been terminated? There's
2: people that have gone away with leave without pay or have been told to go home and wait wait for the economic stimulus package the government around everything around this economic stimulus package is to do with businesses and their the Vanuatu government want to see you know the formal sector how they have there are things in place with this government stimulus package and they've the government have made it clear you've either terminated someone or you've kept them on a temporary casual basis or they're on leave without pay they're on part-time part-time or full-time the economic stimulus package has three sort of criteria whether the staff member has been terminated whether they are remain in full-time employment or part-time currently there is no support for that And it would be great if our tourism sector could ask our government to possibly provide an unemployment benefit to those that have been terminated until such time that maybe the tourism can restart.
0: You have put forward a tourism sector recovery plan. Can you tell me about that?
2: For my own business, we've developed a few recovery plans, but they are contingent on a government-coordinated national response and recovery plan which is being developed with a full range of stakeholders, for example, the Department of Tourism, Foreign Affairs, um, Department of Internal Affairs, Department of uh, Ministry of Finance, the Vanuatu Tourism Office. Um, the key elements for success is that it captures all components required to be COVID safe and COVID ready. It's important that regional and international and bilateral organisations are part of these conversations. I can't speak on behalf of, of the Vanuatu government there has to be a future of tourism in Vanuatu if we're to hold true to our values of maintaining our cultural and environmental heritage. And even though our economic resilience is being tested, we need the partnerships to be on the same platform to reinforce the bubble of trust. And exploring this travel bubble, I guess it's like a honeymoon period respecting individual nations and their protocols. It is my belief that we should all be at that table um, to discuss and not just for a chosen few. Um, The health of our economy, like our main tourist markets, it's critical. And the Pacific voice should be heard. And joining the Trans-Pacific bubble will be months away and our government will have to develop policy criteria for COVID international border control in order to support Vanuatu's economic recovery there'll be many baby steps leading up to this travel bubble inclusion. You know, hopefully the technical and, and industry advice regarding the prior, prioritised inclusion of Vanuatu in this trans-Pacific travel bubble is what's needed to develop the policy criteria for, for having a COVID international border control to support that. So I, I really think and believe Vanuatu and the Pacific, not just a chosen few countries, should be at that table discussing it's inclusion, it should be prioritized.
0: Thanks, Liz, for your time. We wish you and the Havana the very best in the coming months. That was Richard Curtin and Liz Pecan on Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn, and I'll see you next week.